This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival at the beginning of our third day. Thanks so much for coming. My name's Nick Barley, and I'm the director of the festival. And our guest this morning really needs no introduction, but I wanted to say one or two words about her. Because in 1985, when I was at university, a book came out which was highly influential on, on my studies and my thinking and my friendships. It was much talked about, and it was Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. When I arrived in this job 25 years on and learned that it was the 25th anniversary and that a new edition of Oranges would be published this year, it seemed a perfect opportunity to invite our speaker back and to talk about her career and the influence of that book on all of us who've read it. So, without further ado, please give a very warm welcome to Jeanette Winterson. Like most people, I lived for a long time with my mother and father. My father liked to watch the wrestling. My mother liked to wrestle. She was in the white corner, and that was that. She hung out the largest sheets on the windiest days. She wanted the Mormons to knock on her door. <laughs> At election time in a Labour mill town, my mother put a picture of the Conservative candidate <laughs> in the window. My mother had never heard of mixed feelings. There were friends and there were enemies. Enemies were the devil in his many forms, sex in its many forms, slugs next door, and friends were God, Auntie Madge, the novels of Charlotte Bronte, slug pellets, <laughs> And me, well, at first, because I had been brought in to join her in a tag match against the rest of the world. So that's the beginning of Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. Um, I always learn it in case I forget the book, as I did today, but fortunately I was able to get one from the bookshop. And it's 25 years, as you know, since Oranges was published, which seems a whole lifetime away and, and no time at all. I'm not quite sure how it happened um, that I was 50 and that I ended up here um, talking to you about this book, which seems really still so near and so present and so part of my life and everything that has identified me. But I think we all understand that, don't we? We all understand those strange tricks that time appears to play on us because time's just not continuous and it's not constant. You know, it moves in, in different shapes to the ones of the clock and the calendar. And so things which lie very separate in chronological time lie next to each other um, in emotional time, in the inner space that we occupy. And you know what it's like. You can walk down the street and you're simultaneously inhabiting three levels of time all at once. There's the present, which is whatever's happening around you. There's the past, which is always there somewhere at the back of our minds. We're always thinking about something that happened. And we're always 
always thinking about something that might happen or will happen. So we're very used to inhabiting three layers of time. We're comfortable with that space. That's why I always believe that the clock and the calendar is a bit of a lie. It's a good way of dividing the day, of dividing the year, of understanding our lives. But it's not actually how we live. And one of the great things that I think that fiction can do, um, and that, that art can do, but fiction's really good at it, is the way that it can both compress and expand time so that that really fits with our imaginative and our emotional experience rather than simply the linear experience of the day. So you know how in fairy stories people fall asleep and they wake up and it's a hundred years later and everything's changed or the most tumultuous and fantastic events happen over 24 hours which alter a whole life. You know, and Aristotle used to think that the best way to write a play was to do it in the unity of 24 hours but of course everything was in there so life has both accelerated in the pace that it moved will be impossible for us in the life that we live. So it's accelerated, but it's also slowed down to a point where you can dwell on it, think about it. And that can't happen in the normal 24-hour course of a day, but it can happen in imaginative work of any kind. And that's why I believe art is such a relief to us because actually it's the real world it's the reality that we understand on a deeper level and if you believe as i do that life has an inside as well as an outside and that at present the outside of life is very well catered for and the inside of life not not at all then we can go back to books or pictures or music film theater and we can find there both some release and some relief for our inner life, the place where we actually live, the place where we spend so much time. You know, so when people say to me, as they often do, well, art's a bit of a luxury, you know, we're all on holiday, aren't we? You all come along to a tent and you know, we spend time here, but it's not the real world. We're, we're separate from the real world. That's where I would argue with them because I would say that that inner life of ours, whether or not you are religious, is irrelevant because we do have an inner life and that inner life needs to have some respect and it needs to have some nourishment for itself. And that's why art can never be a luxury because if it is, then being human is a luxury. Being who we actually are is a luxury. Life can't be about utility. It has also to be about emotion. It has to be about emotion imagination. It has to be about things for their own sake, um, so that this journey of ours makes sense to us. And it's not simply something that we're rather fretfully trying to get through another day, another week, another month, that pressure that we so often feel. I think that reading books does take your hand really off the panic button. It allows your breathing to return to normal. It allows you to occupy the space which isn't entirely ruled by other people's demands and by utility. It just slows everything down nicely. So now, as we're in a gospel tent, have I saved any souls? <laughs> <laughs> because really, nobody's allowed to leave here unless something happens to them, because I'll be watching you, right? <laughs> So, and at the end, what we really need is a little organ to be wheeled on. And then I'll ask you to put your hands up and we'll have a quiet moment and that hopefully will change everything. And you'll leave here thinking, yes, um, I've given my life to art. And then I'll feel satisfied. Because as you know, my mother wanted me to be a missionary. That was her plan. And that's why... Um, 12 years after she married, I have no idea what happened in the 12 years before I came along. And there isn't a lot to do up north. But for 12 years anyway, they didn't manage to have any children and then they did manage to get me. And the plan was that I would be a missionary and go to hot places. Um, 
which I suppose was anywhere that wasn't where we lived, really, because <laughs> in the north it's, it's always freezing. Um, and that was Mrs. Winterson's plan. But it, I don't know if it worked out or it didn't. I think it probably did. I mean, that's what's so worrying, that you can end up entirely <laughs> fulfilling the destiny laid down for you by your rather crazy mother. Um, and you thought you'd been a rebel and broken three and that everything had changed, and here you are in a fucking gospel tent in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> I do ask myself sometimes how this happened, and I thought I'll read you a little bit more from Oranges. I have to have my specs on there because of age, but I can see that lots of you in the audience are also flashing away. I see the glint on your lenses, so you won't mind about that, I don't think. Um, when I wrote Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, I wanted to... I wanted to do something a bit different because I'd read Virginia Woolf's Orlando, which is a novel masquerading as a biography, and I'd read Gertrude Stein, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which is, of course, not an autobiography at all because Alice B. Toklas didn't write it, Gertrude Stein did. And I'd read James Joyce, you know, um, and Portrait of the Artist as a Young Dog, and I'd read Dylan Thomas, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and I thought, Memoir wasn't, in, wasn't happening then, you know, it's everywhere now, Every, everybody's doing it, you know, Jordan, Beyonce, you know. but then people weren't doing those things, they were just dealing with fiction, and I thought, well, what could I do, how could I push the form forward, um, and maybe I could make myself into a fictional character, and that seemed very attractive at the time, because my life was so dismal and oppressed that making myself into a fiction seemed to be a really good way out. Um, it also seemed to expand the possibilities of who I could be. And I did learn early on that if you can read yourself as a fiction as well as a fact, then you really can expand the self because then anything is possible. And also, you then realise that if it's a story and you're writing it, and somebody is going to tell your story, so if you don't tell it, somebody else will, so it might as well be you. But if it's a story, then you can change it. And that's what's really exciting because if you can change the story, then you're no longer caught in, in some dark narrative, perhaps, that you don't want anymore. You know, and it was, it was of course, Freud who perhaps first realised in psychoanalysis that you could change the narrative and that the way that you read the past, the way that you understood yourself in the past and the past shaping you, would actually allow you to go back in and redeem that time, which, which is really quite something, isn't it? And that takes us back to that idea of time not being fixed and not being constant. We think the past is gone. It isn't at all. Um, and there's a rather nice term for the past, which I read, I can't remember who said it, but it's a great term. The past becomes the old present. It's really good, isn't it? So unfortunately, it's still there, you're still living it, but it appears to be the past. So the idea of being able to go back and change that narrative um, to switch it, to rewrite it, to reread it, to alter it. It's very powerful. And of course, we learn that in fiction all of the time. We learn it unconsciously. It's, it's a gift that fiction allows us to have, one of the many gifts, that the past can be redeemed, and that's the right word for it. Um, you're, not you're not locked in it, and you're not lost in it. It doesn't have to be the old present. It can be a place which opens into a renewal of the present present and allows the future to happen. The heathen were a daily household preoccupation. My mother found them everywhere, particularly next door. For anybody with neighbours, this passage is for you. Next door tormented her as only the godless can, but my mother had her methods. They hated hymns 
and she liked to play the piano. It was an old upright with pitted candelabra and yellow keys, and we each had a copy of the Redemption Hymnal, boards and cloth, three shillings. My mother sang the tune, and I put in the harmonies. And the first hymn I ever learned was a magnificent Victorian composition called Ask the Saviour to Help You. But one Sunday morning, we just got in from communion and we heard strange noises, like cries for help coming from next door. I took no notice, but my mother froze behind the radiogram and started to change colour. And Mrs White, who'd come home with us to listen to the world service, immediately crushed her ear against the wall. <laughs> what is it? I asked. I don't know, said Mrs White in a loud whisper, but whatever it is, it's not holy. <laughs> Still, my mother didn't move. Have you got a wine glass? said Mrs White. My mother looked horrified. For medicinal purposes, I mean, said Mrs White. And my mother went into the high cupboard and reached down a box from the top shelf. This was her war cupboard. And every week she put a new tin in it. Mostly it was full of black cherries in syrup and special offer sardines. She handed over the wine glass. I never used these. Oh, neither do I, said Mrs White, clamping herself back against the wall. And while my mother was covering up the television, Mrs White slithered up and down the wall and the skirting board with the wine glass. We've just had that wall decorated, said my mother. Well, it stopped anyway, said Mrs White. At that moment, another burst of wailing began from next door. Very clear this time. They're fornicating! <laughs> My mother rushed to put her hands over my ears. Get off! The dog started barking. My dad had been on nights, came down in his pyjama bottoms. You put some clothes on, shouted my mother. Next door's at it again. <laughs> Outside, suddenly, we heard the ice cream van. My mother turned to me. Go and get two cornets and a wafer for Mrs White. I ran off. I didn't know what fornicating was, but... I had read about it in Deuteronomy. <laughs> and I knew it was a sin. But why was it so noisy? Because most sins you do quietly so as not to get caught. I bought the ice cream and I decided to take my time. But when I got back, my mother had opened the piano and she and Mrs White were looking through the redemption hymnal. I passed round the ice creams. It stopped, I said, for the moment, said my mother. She wiped her hands on her apron and turned to ask the saviour to help you. We'll sing that. Mrs White, you can be the baritone. The first verse was very fine, I thought. Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you, some other to win. Fight manfully onward, dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus, he will carry you through. The hymn had a rousing chorus that moved my mother to such an extent that she departed entirely from the notation of the redemption hymnal and instead wrought her own huge chords that sounded the length of the piano. No note was exempt. 
by the time we got to verse 3, next door had started to bang on the wall. Listen to the heathen, said my mother jubilant, her foot furious on the hard pedal. Sing it again. And we did. And the heathen, driven mad by the word, rushed away to find what blunt instruments they could to pound the wall from the other side. Some of them ran into the backyard and yelled over the wall, Stop that bloody racket! On a Sunday, said Mrs. White. My mother leapt from the keys and rushed into the backyard to quote the scripture. She found herself staring at the eldest son, who had a lot of spots. The Lord help me, she prayed. And a piece of Deuteronomy flashed into her mind. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt. <laughs> and with the ulcers and the scurvy and the itch of which you cannot be cured. <laughs> and then she ran back inside. Now then, who's for a bit of dinner? <laughs> I don't know. Still in the north. <laughs> oh. So that was a glimpse of life on a Sunday um, in Accrington, in our house. And people often say to me, well, is, you know, how autobiographical is Orange is Not the Only Fruit? But it's not a faithful account of my life. I'm not sure I could tell it. Um, I don't even know if there is such a thing as a faithful account um, because Everything seems different at the time. It seems different over time. It seems different to somebody else. Um, some of the things took place. Some of the things didn't. Um, there is a character in the book called Testifying Elsie who looks after the little Jeanette and really tries to explain life to her. Um, and perhaps the saddest thing about Orange is not the only fruit is that there was no Testifying Elsie because there was nobody to look after the little Jeanette. Um, but there are stories that you can write and that there are, there are stories that you can't write. And in the end, the right, you write the ones that you can. And that allows you to bear the ones that you can't. And th there's nothing, I think, particularly upsetting about that. I think it's simply a strategy of survival. And it's also how we allow ourselves agency in the world. Instead of being completely overwhelmed uh, by the things that happen to us, we are, by that writing of the story, by the way that we tell what's happened to us, giving it back to ourselves instead of being powerless within it. And I do think that's very important. Because, you know, whenever we're in deep trauma, when things are difficult, we always say, don't we, um, I didn't know what to say, I couldn't find the words, the words stuck in my throat, I couldn't get it off my chest. We use these images, uh, these ways of talking, because language fails us at those times, in times of great grief, in times of extremity, in times of stress. What, what, what can we say? Where can we find the words that will somehow make bearable um, the pain that we're in at that time? And again, that's why I always go back to the poets or I turn to some of my favourite passages because there are the words. Somebody has deep-dived them for me and brought them back up to the surface and deep-dived them in the place where there are no words, that awful place where language doesn't exist, where we cannot say, where we cannot speak. And the reason why we can trust our writers, our poets, our artists is that they are able to deep-dive those places and bring it back up so that you can find it, so that you're not without language, you're not in that terrible place um, where there's nothing that can be said. Um, 
it's very good to have those poems, those passages in our minds, even if we misremember them, to find a language that we can use at those times, because we can't trust it to the soap op opera cliches of television. We can't trust it to soundbite journalism. We can't trust it to that volume of data lacking all meaning that invades us and bombards us every day. For the real things in our lives, the deep things in our lives, we have to find a language which is an, an equivalent to the emotions that we feel. And that's really only possible um, through literature, through poetry, because their language is working at its most powerful. It's working at its height. It's not that it's artificial. It's simply the place that we cannot find in the normal discourse of every day. It's a heightened language because it speaks to us in those heightened situations. Um, and although I'm, I, I'm very, I enjoy popular culture, I think there's much in it that's really good, I don't believe that it can speak to us um, at the moment of real stress or distress. I think for there, you need something which is a lot more powerful. You need to find that language and then you can create your own. And it's kind of homeopathic, isn't it? I mean, you only need like homeopathic dilutions of language, a line of poetry, sometimes even a single word. And that then seems to effect great change within the body and in the self, even in these, these, these tiny little quanta, these, these little packages that we can have. So it's always worth having a line or two in your head for the things that you need when you need them. Um, and indeed, I learned this very early on, as some of you will know this story, in that books weren't allowed in our house. Uh, Mrs. Winston was a very intelligent woman, but and she was a pamphleteer by temperament, but she knew that sedition and controversy are fired by printed matter. And the only thing she wanted us to have was the Bible. My father couldn't really read at all. He left school very early and worked in a factory. And my mother was in charge of Bible. And we had Bible every day in the evening. She read to us from the King James Bible. We used to start at Genesis, go through all 66 books, and end up in her favorite bit, which of course was the apocalypse. <laughs> um, Believe me, if, if my mother had been president during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we wouldn't be in Edinburgh today. <laughs> because if she could have pressed the red button, she would. And this is something people often forget about fundamentalism. There's no argument between faith and secularism. Faith is a very good thing. There's a big argument between fundamentalism and secularism. It's very, very different. And I get quite upset when people confuse faith with fundamentalism because they are not the same things. There's a big argument. I have big arguments with fundamentalism because that red button will be pressed and we'll all go because then, of course, you know, we all get to a better place, don't we? Because um, I used to say, you know, if, if there's a loving God, why did he make Accrington? <laughs> And she used to say, it doesn't matter because it'll be blown up. <laughs> Which I suppose, you know, had, had a kind of comfort to it. <laughs> it was also, you know, with the same with the universe. She used to say that the, the whole universe was a cosmic dustbin. And I'd say, well, is, is the lid on or off? <laughs> Guess. <laughs> and I couldn't live in a world where the lid was on. So I had to escape. Um, and for me, escape did come through books. So in our house, you always had lots of things written on the walls on bits of paper, text from the Bible that we were reading. Um, because when we got to the end, when we got to the apocalypse, we were allowed two weeks to consider our fate. And then we go back and start at Genesis again. 
Um, so you get to know the Bible pretty well this way over the years, but just in case, she'd stick things up. And I think it's probably part of the reason that I write the way I do. Um, so there'll always be texts on the wall. You know, my, my coat line said, think of God, not the dog, <laughs> under my coat peg. And she put little notes in my hockey boots, you know, when I went to school. So that I was always, I, although we were meant to be living in a world where uh, only the scriptures obtained, in fact, I was fed with words and shod with them. Words were everywhere. And in our house, like, I suppose some of you remember this, we always had an outside toilet. And if you, go, if you went into our outside toilet, um, those who stood up read, linger not at the Lord's business. <laughs> And those who sat down on the red on the back door, he shall melt thy bowels <laughs> like wax. So, you know, we were, we were in big relationship, I think, both to language uh, as, and to God. But yet books were simply not allowed in the house. When I was little, I was allowed to read books because that, that was fine. There's nothing in them. Although my mother taught me to read from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, there's a lot of animals in it, but not horses and bunnies and little dogs. You know, you have hoopoos and rock badgers and cranes. So it was an interesting menagerie that we had in the north of England for me at that time. So I was learning to read from there. But later on, I wanted nothing but to read books. All I wanted, I, had a, I suspected that books were going to give me something that nothing else was going to give me, and I had to find them. And my mother used to send me to the library because we're all full of contradictions. Um, and she liked to read murder mystery stories, <laughs> although nobody else was allowed to do this. And I said to her, can't I have a library ticket? She said, no. I said, well, why not? And she said, well, the trouble with a book is that you never know what's in it until it's too late. <laughs> and I thought, well, too late for what? And I imagined that these drafts would be some extraordinary thing which would indeed change me, and they did change me. So when I went down there to collect her murder mysteries, and I'd drag them back and I'd give them to her, she always read Ellery Queen or Raymond Chandler. I'd say, why is this all right? And she said, if you know there's a body coming, it isn't so much of a shock. <laughs> so that was her reading. However, I did manage to start reading books. And I used to use my money from working on the markets to, to buy them and to smuggle them into the house. And those of you here, you know, don't, you don't need to be worldly to know that if you have a single bed standard size and a collection of paperbacks standard size, you can fit 74 per layer under the mattress, <laughs> depending on how you space them, which is what I did. So I thought that was fine for a while, and then, of course, my bed was rising visibly. <laughs> it was like the princess in the pea. And Mrs. Winston was a suspicious woman anyway. But even had you not been, it was clear that I was going to be sleeping close to the ceiling and into the floor. And one day she came in, and there was the bed up there, and me on the top of it, and the books underneath, and there was one sticking out terrible. So she pulled it. And it was D.H. Lawrence, Women in Love. <laughs> terrible, terrible, terrible. Because she knew about Lawrence, that he was a Satanist and pornographer. All of the books and me tumbled onto the floor. And then she began to throw them out of the window. And there was nothing I could do. And she threw them out of the window. Then she went into the bathroom, um, which she'd pretty much made herself. And um, we got, I had a little paraffin stove in there full of paraffin. And then she went into the backyard and poured the paraffin over the books and set them on fire. 
and uh, it was very cold, it was January, and there was this fire in the yard blazing away so rather beautifully in all my boats that I spent so much time buying and collecting, and they were all going. And in the morning when I went down there, and this may well be why I'm the kind of writer I am, many of the pages were burned, but there were fragments, of course, of all the texts floating about in the yard and in the back alley, just little bits of language, little bits of other people's books. And I was collecting these little bits of paper um, out of series, out of sequence, out of novel, um, having a big bag of them. And that's all that was left. And then I thought, fuck it, I'll write my own. <laughs> because that was the only thing to do. And I also realised at that moment that anything that is outside of you can be taken away. Anything. And only what's inside of you can you really call your own, can you depend upon, can you know is there, can you know won't be taken away by some willful act of someone else. Um, you know, we feel quite powerless in our world now, I think. It's becoming a more powerless place to be. You know, the illusion of free choice, which really only extends to soap powder um, and cable channels, isn't giving as much choice in the way we actually live our lives. We are beginning to lack agency. You know, people need two jobs um, just so that they can you know, have a decent roof over their head and feed their kids. You know, we don't have time. We're told what to watch, what to feel, what to read. Everything is really controlled now. Um, it's all on the outside and we get back to this business of life having an inside and an outside and I thought well if, if it's on the inside she won't be able to find it no matter how much she looks she'll never be able to find these things these will be my secrets um, and it will be a secret life but it'll also be a safe life so that's when I started memorizing text which anyway you do a lot in the evangelical church because you know you need to be godly so this came in handy so I just memorized great chunks of text um, so I could carry them around with me in this in this this secret library this other place um, and I still do that I, I find it quite easy to memorize things but I also feel there that whatever happens to me I'll have that um, and I feel that when we're back to this business, if I need a language for things which are overwhelming, um, I'll be able to turn to something there. Um, when, when my mother was throwing me out, which happened fairly rapidly, and I was in, uh, this was pretty devastating for me at the time because I think, you know, if, if you're an adopted child and you have one failed family, you do blame yourself. But to find you, yourself back in that situation again um, at 16 is very difficult. And again, it's arbitrary. Um, it's that awful thing that someone else controls your life. You know, and all adopted children are control freaks. I am, because you know, look what happened when we weren't. Um, so you really need to take it back, so you find a way of doing that. But I have no control at that time, um, except for the things that I was building inside, which was this very personal sense of self. So she sent me down to the library to get yet another of the murder mysteries. Uh, collections and she'd ordered something called Murder in the Cathedral <laughs> by T.S. Eliot because she thought it was about homicidal monks <laughs> and she liked anything that was bad for the Pope <laughs> so anyway I used to look at them because sometimes they were a bit damaged people ripped it and I thought this looks a bit short for a murder mystery <laughs> because normally they're quite long so I opened it and also it was written in verse and I thought no this isn't a murder mystery. And I asked the librarian who T.S. Eliot was. I thought that this person might be related to George because I had no idea. You don't when you're 16, do you? You don't know anybody is. Um, 
And I'd been reading books in the, in the library as best I could because in those days the Accrington Public Library was a really splendid building and it had everything, it had all literature. And if you didn't know where to start, it was fine because if you started at A, you hit Jane Austen and quite soon you hit the Brontes. Really good. Um, what would you do now? I went in there the other day, it was just full of DVDs. Um, ah. Anyway, so I'd been working my way through. Um, so I'd done George, of course, but um, I hadn't done the poetry section so I knew nothing about T.S. So the librarian explained that T.S. Eliot was a modern poet, um, not that long dead, who occasionally wrote plays in verse. So I took it outside and I opened it. Um, and it was really one of those breakthrough moments that you get by some act of grace, who knows where that grace comes from. And I read, this is one moment, know that another shall pierce you with a sudden painful joy. So I sat on the steps of Accrington Public Library and I read it all the way through. and. It was an enormous help to me, the thought that this was one moment, but there would be another, and that it would pierce me. Um, there is pain in the verb, but with a sudden painful joy. And at that point, I thought, OK, I can leave home, I can do this, I can get on with my studies, um, I can work, you know, I can, I can start again, because that this moment will allow it to happen. I can go forward with it. Um, and I never forgot that. And you take those things with you all of your life. I think. Um, so literature has really made me possible in a way that's not supposed to happen for kids who don't have anything where everything's meant to go wrong. You know, we're so busy with the whole social service programme of how they need to be in the world. I think, probably, you just need some really good books and some really good stories stuffed in your head um, and a sense that other people out there, quite distanced from you in every sense, have shared those same feelings, those same experiences, those emotions, so that you are joined, you belong, um, rather than being isolated on a little raft of time, just tossing around in the sea of history, um, utterly alone. You are connected, and I felt connected at that point, so I was able to go. And the reason I had to leave home, of course, was that it was, we're back to sex, we're back to the beginning of oranges, in that I'd started a relationship with another girl. I don't know what would have happened if Mrs. Winston hadn't intervened in her usual heavy-handed way. Um, but really, the choice was leave home or give up the girl. Well, what would you do? <laughs> well, that's right. So I had to leave home. Um, and when I was getting myself together, because I was going to go and live with a teacher, so that was quite good. And I thought, well, there'll be space, there'll be a place. Um, we discussed it, me and Mrs. Winterson, and I'd said, look, this makes me happy. Whatever that word means, it makes me happy. And she thought about it for a bit, because she had great silences, um, and then she would always come out with something as she'd summed up the situation. And I was leaving, I had my bag packed, so, and she said, Jeanette, and she looked at me, I do remember her look, and I thought, she's going to change her mind. Well, and she said, why be happy when you could be normal? <laughs> it's a lot to think about. And indeed, I have never stopped thinking about it. I think it was another one of those defining moments. Because there isn't a straightforward answer, is there? And I did leave, and it didn't make me particularly happy. Um, and one thing that I've learned painfully over the years, um, uh, through the assaults and batteries of life, is that 
doing, doing the right thing, doing the thing that you need to do, um, does not automatically, instantly, or even for a very long time, make you happy. Um, often, doing the right thing, doing the thing you need to do, makes you feel a great deal worse. Um, and then people panic and they think, you know, I should have stayed or I should not have gone or I should have done this or I should have done that because, look, um, everything now is worse. And it probably is because it has to be because you've left behind so much. And in a, even, in, in, even in those intolerable situations, there's a kind of safety and a comfort. There's a known place, isn't there? And we all like what we know, all of us, even when it's dreadful, we like what we know. Um, and leaving it behind causes such difficulties. I mean, the, the brain actually has to reconfigure itself anyway when it's given a new situation. So there's all sorts of things going on. Um, and I discovered then, as I've discovered later, that happiness, in so much as it exists, um, isn't found simply by doing the thing that you need to do. It's by some commitment to the self, I think, that you're actually going to sound like the L'Oreal advert, that you're worth it. Um, <laughs> but that whatever it is you need to do, you do. And you do it bravely, and you do it with all the courage that you can summon, no matter how scared you are, and then you see what happens. But, you know, that bit in the American Constitution about the right to the pursuit of happiness, you know, certainly not the right to happiness, is very interesting. Because I think um, that active verb, to pursue, I think happiness is something that you pursue. It's, it's a process, and it's a thing in process. I don't think it's a state. I mean, they're all, of course, we've all had times when we are so happy. Um, and we know it won't last because usually at that moment it's one of those odd collections of external circumstances where just everything has come right for a while and we think, oh, this is great. And we feel it, don't we, in our whole bodies. It's lovely. Um, but it is very it often externally driven in that sense. And that the pursuit of happiness, which I do, I do believe in it, um, it's really that place, it, it's that painful joy. I'm not sure you can separate the words, can you? Um, but some, you are alive in yourself and you're as fully alive as you can be. And although I'm not in the business of saving souls, if I could say anything, I would simply say to you, be as fully alive as you can be. Whatever it costs you makes no difference. You know? Because this is all we have. Maybe there's a world after this one. I don't know and neither do you. But what we have got is this, this now, um, which is entirely precious and so fragile um, and really the only thing that we've got now. And so to be fully alive in it, not sleepwalk through it, not kind of take the placebos, the painkillers, not blur it out, however awful, but to face it um, and to be in it is, our, is really our one chance, both at knowing who we are and having a relationship with other people and with the outside world that is based on something that's real rather than something that's false. And that pursuit of happiness, which I also think is the pursuit of the real, is the thing, I guess, that drives me. And I get there through language. That's why I, I keep stalking it. It's life itself that I'm trying to stalk from all sides because I want to know it all. You know, I want to go out of here. You know, look, I'm 50. I'm, you know, I can see it now. There's a point halfway through your life where you think, yes, there's this little shark fin out at sea, but it's going to come nearer. And you don't see it until around now, and then you know. You suddenly, I thought, well, I've worked for 25 years. Another 25, I'll be 75. Okay, what, what time have I got? What can I do with it? How can I go out? You know, how can I get there? Um, and for me, it's this sense of, of living, to be a lot as alive as possible, and not to cheat my own life by being half dead or just, just not bothering, not caring enough, you know, to throw myself at it, however ridiculous, and make loads of mistakes and be a complete idiot. Um, you know, it's what you have to do. When I told my mother that um, I'd fallen in love with another girl, she lay down on the sofa in a varicose vein burst. 
She had the most extraordinary somatic control. Um, I mean, really, she could have done a damn brown or something. She could have been on stage, couldn't she? Um, she lay down and she had a big varicose vein at the top of her leg and it just went... I don't know if you've ever seen a varicose vein go, but it's quite something. And I was horrified. I just went in to get a pot towel. I'm trying to write, oh, yeah, yeah I'm gay. Pot towel, you're so sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean it. <laughs> it's great. Geese are going off at the ceiling. And I looked at her, and she, she's lying there like this. <laughs> and then she said, we've just had that ceiling decorated. <laughs> can you do? And she'd always, she always said to me, you know, she said, you know, you've ruined our lives for your dad and me. And I thought, no, I haven't. You live in Accrington. <laughs> no, I didn't start it. But you do need to have some sense of self to deal with an exploding geezer of a parent. Um, she was a great one for the decorating, actually. She always did it because she was very good at it and we didn't have any money. But nobody else in our family was really any good at anything, according to Mrs. Winston. So she'd just be up the ladder doing the wallpaper. Um, we'd be down here doing it and it'd be tea time. We'd say, do you want to come down and have some potato pie? She'd say, no, I'll just have a sandwich up the ladder. <laughs> so you'd have to get it and pass it to her you know, with a cup of tea. And there's a bit of shit. I mean, she was 20 stone. And, you know, those little terraced houses in Accrington are small. So there'd be huge creature looming at the top of the wooden stepladder. You know, my dad would be trying to watch boxing or something and I'd be eating my tea. Um, and there she was up there. And the thing with her is that she had such a sense of the moment that I don't know what she did when we went to bed because she'd be up the ladder. But when you got up in the morning, she would be again or still, possibly. Um, I mean, I don't know if she ran back up when she heard us upstairs. <laughs> But she was always there. And there's a, you know, when it, later on I wrote a book called Sex in the Cherry, which has a character in it called the Dog Woman. Um, it was this huge creature who lives on the banks of the Thames. And that was another version of Mrs. Winston because she did loom over everything for me. Um, and you, you do take that with you. But I think everything is forgiven. I hope so. Would you like to ask me a question? <laughs> you don't have to. I mean, this was a woman who had two sets of false teeth. You know, a mat set for every day and a pearl ice set for Sunday. <laughs> right. Um, there's lots of hands at the back. It's, it's funny, isn't it? It all starts at the back, I think. Yeah, I think there's a microphone as well. Yeah, so we get the lady there, three in on the third row down, I think. One, two, three, fourth row down. Hi, um, I was wondering if you're concerned about the future of literature, because I believe at this very festival there's some scaremongering going on about the internet and how it's making us all stupid and no one in my generation reads books. And I wonder what you thought about that, if you think that's true or mm. where you think that's going to go. About the future of literature? Well, I'm worried about the future of being human, and I think the two are connected, you know, as we were talking earlier at the beginning. Um, it's what kind of human beings we want to be, if we want to be human beings at all. And that does seem to be a little bit imbalanced, doesn't it, <laughs> at the moment? Um, whether we want to do the things that are uniquely human, that make us what we are, um, in, in all our eccentricity and variety and diversity and strangeness, the things that we are, or whether we want to go entirely for utility. Um, 
and make all our education vocational, um, whether it's simply that we're all going to work until we're 75 and then have nothing to live on. Um, you know, how do we want to live? That, that's what I mean about the powerlessness that we feel at the moment, because we do definitely need a different social agenda, because we don't have one right now, I don't think. Um, and I think, you know, but I really believe that art will play a part of that. And the forms of literature, the format may change. It may well all go digital. I mean, it will break my heart, but it may happen. And that might be okay for a younger generation coming up. I mean, my godchildren don't really seem to have any difficulty with everything being digital. And they're certainly not um, shallow, superficial people. But what worries me really is that there's been a lot of complete shite talked about the digital revolution as being the new Gutenberg, that it's just that we're in this place and it was it used to be print and now it's digital. The, the whole problem with that argument, which is just wrong, um, is that the Gutenberg revolution put books on the shelves. This is going to take them off. That doesn't seem to me to be an equivalent. So if you imagine everybody's copying out their manuscripts for two years, which is a hell of a long time, um, and you can only get them in the great library and then suddenly you can get them through print. That is democracy. That is a real step forward. That is giving people something that they couldn't otherwise have. That's access. Um, if you take everything off the shelves and you digitalise it, you can only find it if you know what you're looking for. So I mean, there's no point me going to the public libraries. There. I mean, even, even if the... The great thing about that was you could just start at A and know nothing. If, that, if that's all digital, how do I start? I don't know where to begin because I have to know something in order to start. Um, and that's a problem. Well, somebody has to say to me, download this, read this, do that. Um, so what worries me is that it's stealing from people who won't be able to find these things. And as usual, that will be the less well-off, the less well-educated, the less privileged in our society. Um, which used to be me, won't simply be able to go to a place and find the stuff, whether it's a bookshop or a library or whatever. They'll have to find it through that whole great surf of everything else going on. And the kids that do will be the kids who have the right parents, who have to go to the right schools and have the right encouragement. So we're going to create um, an even more rigidly divided society than the one we've got now. Um, you know, art is democratic. It is there for everybody, and, and it can speak to everybody. It really can. All you need to do is offer it to people, and they can find it. You know, people. This back to the stupid elitist argument. Um, for me, the absolute proof that art is for everybody and is meant to be so is, you know, ask yourself this: every child ever born anywhere in the world at any time wants to hear stories, then wants to tell stories, wants to act out little dramas, will pick up an instrument and start to play it, will paint a picture to go on the fridge, will do a little dance, will sing. It's hardwired. And then we beat it out of them, they try and find it later, and we say, oh, it's elitist, it's leisure time. Um, so what you're doing right at the beginning is taking away the thing which is such a beautiful and unique expression of our humanness, that we want to do that, we want to live in that imaginative emotional space. You know, that, that wonderful sense of play that all children have, which is directly connected to invention. Children are inventive. You know, you can dish that by the time they're seven, and then if they ever find it again, it's called individual choice. No, is that what you want? No, and that's what we've got to fight. Um, and that, so that's when I think the future of literature, the future of art, is so closely bound up with the future of ourselves as human beings and what we want. So when you come here, when we go to these festivals, when we buy books, when we participate, we're voting with our feet. You know, this is a political act. It's saying, I want this. 
don't take it away from me. Um, so all the support that we can do is really important. So you're acting privately and that you're buying books, you're going to the theatre, you're coming to festivals, and we have to act politically as well because we need social change. We need to say we're not going to be reduced to this robot status that the 21st century, which promised so much, is now offering. That was a long answer. <laughs> There's a, up there. I'll be quick this time. If Mrs. Winterson, if Mrs. Winterson was sitting on that chair there, she couldn't, wouldn't fit. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to her? <laughs> I'd say, why aren't you proud of me? <coughs> Sad, isn't it? <laughs> um, but I might also say that. Everything is forgiven because I'll tell. This won't be a long answer, but listen. If you cut out the, the the faux Hollywood happy ending, there are only three endings to any story um, that you can ever read um, in one shape or form or the other. It's revenge, it's tragedy, or it's forgiveness. That's how stories end, and revenge has a certain seduction to it and tragedy is sort of emotionally beguiling isn't it because then you can be a victim and be sorry for yourself um, but actually there's only one that works practically and it's forgiveness and you have to find a way to do that so that's where I'd be next question the gentleman there it's you <laughs> actually you could shout at me probably and I could repeat it the society was about sexuality. Yes. And I wonder whether you would care to comment on what has changed in that 25 years? Yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot has changed, and I'm glad to have been part of that change, though it cost me dear in terms of my personal life. You know, I wanted to talk about literature, and all the newspapers wanted to talk about was who you were sleeping with. It was maddening. Um, you know, because sex sells newspapers, gay sex sells more newspapers. Um, you know, so you always still end up in that sort of hateful situation. Um, where if you want to be honest about your personal life, you also find that your sexuality is foregrounded in a way it's not for straight people. You know, the most boring thing in the world, really, is who you're sleeping with or the gender of who you're sleeping with. Um, but, you know, if you're gay, then it's all anybody thinks about, isn't it? <laughs> for some reason. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know what's the matter sometimes. Uh, but maybe it's straight sex. Maybe, but actually, lots of straight people just think about having gay sex. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I just wonder why. You know, every time an interviewer comes along as supposedly a straight person, they immediately start talking about gay sex. And you think, you know, do you want me to give you a few contacts? Or <laughs> what's the problem? But no, it has changed. Um, you know, if you remember in 1988, that hateful Clause 28 came out under Margaret Thatcher, um, which was about pretended family relationships. And, you know, she'd obviously never read Dickens because in Dickens, all, all the real relationships are pretend ones. You know, there's not one functional blood family in Dickens everybody's cobbled together by some ties of love and affection that somehow make things work but we know she never read books so that was hateful but you know things have got better I really believe things have got better but 
you know, we're discussing this. I suppose you saw the things in the papers about in Italy recently about gay men kissing on the beach. Not flamboyantly, I mean, just in, in a quite an acceptable way. And that they were driven off the beach and there's been a lot of homophobia there. I think with everything that we win back from that, the pool of hatred, which is the easy default position, we have to keep winning it back. It doesn't ever seem that fixed, you know, whether it's racism, um, whether, whether it's faith hate, or fundamentalism, faith hate, you know, whether it's sexuality. You know, being tolerant to about other people, being able to accept other people is really hard. It's much easier to be angry with everybody and then blame it on some aspect of themselves that we don't particularly feel comfortable with. Much easier. So, you know, it's a hard work thing being a human being. You've always got to be there and not just fall back into our own prejudices, which we all have. Um, that's just easy, the default position. But I think so. I think it's changed. But, you know, we cannot give up. We cannot stop. So, unfortunately, I still seem to have to be a gay activist and a gay icon, which... Um, feels a bit odd after 25 years, but we have moved. And if anybody here, you know, just again, personally and politically, if you find it in your own lives, people around you always challenge it. And we must also keep fighting for it at the social level. It's not over till it's over. Another question, the lady there. I don't know. Look, she's young as well. Get around here. Yeah. I just wondered if you managed to find any love for your adoptive parents. Did I find any love for my adoptive yes. parents? Yeah. Um, I think I did love them when I was little. Because um, you do, don't you? You attach yourself where you have to. And um, you know, there were many good things. It wasn't by no means um, a bad situation. In, in, in every sense. And I had the church, which was a very good extended place to be. I don't regret any of that. But, you know, it's, it's, when, it's when a parent rejects a child um, just completely because that child cannot be who the parent thinks they ought to be. Um, and then you can't love because love has been cut off. Because, you know, we learn love, don't we? Um, I think we come inclined to love. Um, I think we're born inclined to love, but we learn how to do it and how to relate through those early relationships. You know, and if they have completely screwball relationships, you know, I mean, we went round in a gospel tent. That's why it feels so comfortable here. But, you know, you believe that everyone has a gospel tent somewhere in the attic, and you, be, you learn to love through what you know. Um, f loving Mrs. Winston was complex because she didn't really know how to love, and it was so bound up with her own needs, um, defeats, uh, difficulties. You know, and it's taken me a long time. I mean, I'm in a good situation now. I've got somebody who really loves me, um, and I think I'm able to love them in a way which I, in a way, such ways I haven't really been able to before. You know, I have quite troubled times there. So, you know, it takes forever to sort it out. Um, but you do, because you must. If anybody here just feels like it's all hopeless, it's not. <laughs> We've got time maybe for one more question. Oh, I'll go over there, because I've ignored them. Um, I noticed that the authors you speak of were the great ones, Bronte, Austin. How, if you went into the library now, you might be accosted by Dan Brown. You think that would, you'd have the same sort of influence? I think um, The Da Vinci Code is the only book I've ever managed to read in French because it was so simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, but I think the French cleaned it up because they couldn't bear it, you know, because they've got, they've got taste. They didn't even bother to use any of their literary tenses because it was irrelevant. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's quite good if anybody wants to practice. Um, 
you know, re reading Madeleine in French is much, diff much more difficult. But no, it won't do. I mean, look, those page turners, I'm not, I, I, there's a place for them, but they're not going to, they're not going to hit the heart. And that's, that's what we're interested in, aren't we? We want life at the highest level. You know, we want, we want to struggle, we want to try. And, you know, often things that we read, that we see, opera, theatre, books, they're a bit difficult, they're stretches. But that's great, because we need to be stretched. You know, we need to find something that takes us on as human beings, because reading's not a passive act, it's a relationship. You're in it with the writer, with the book, in that moment. It's between the two of you, you know, and you have to work that between the two of you because it's a relationship like any other. So I want a writer that I can fight with a little bit, that I can argue with a little bit, that I can get angry with and just think, you know, that doesn't work, just chuck it away. And then you bring it back and you think, yeah, but this works. You know, there's no such thing anyway as the perfect book and there are bits in it that we won't like. You know, critics seem to have forgotten this. You don't want factory finished fiction because that's the easiest thing in the world to write, you know, because it's been done a hundred times before and it's just... It's just, it's just veneer, it's just surface. You want something which is a bit jagged, a bit tough, a bit difficult, works here, doesn't work there, because then you can see the handprints in it. You know, you want the maker's mark. You don't want the bloody thing looking like it's come out of a gift shop. So that's why it's worth tackling authors um, and going back to them and trusting them and just keeping in that place of reality. That's all I want. I want contact with the real. You know, I want to live in a place uh, which is more than the superficial. I want to live in a place, you know, which allows me to breathe, which allows me to think, which allows me to be, and then allows me also to give something to other people back into this sense of relationship. And I think we're at the end, aren't we? We've got one minute. Look, who was that shouting at me up there? No, it's me. Oh, it's you. No, you wouldn't, because it's, uh, well, you wouldn't get in Accrington Public Library. Libraries have been totally wrecked, and we need to try and get them back. But with the Cameron cuts, who knows? And if you voted for David Cameron, fine, but please write to him. <laughs> and say what you want about being a human being, because, you know, that's what we need. I'm going to finish with a poem that isn't mine. It's by R.S. Thomas, and it's called The Bright Field. I have seen the sun illuminate one small field for a while, and gone my way and forgotten it. But that was the pearl of great price, the one field that had the treasure in it. I realize now that I must give all that I have to possess it. Life is not hurrying towards a receding future, nor hankering after an imagined past. It is the turning aside, like Moses, to the miracle of the lit bush, to a brightness that seems as transitory as your youth once, but is the eternity that awaits you. Thank you. Your applause says it all. That was the book festival at its very best. Passionate, entertaining, and very, very funny. And 
Well, thank you so much. I think on behalf of everybody, I just want to say a great thank you to you, Jeanette. And we can, uh, we can also say thanks by going around to the signing tent and buying a copy of the book. And so Jeanette will be around the corner signing copies of her book now. Thank you. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.